This is the Digital Corporate Communication Podcast. Hello, I'm Dr. Mark Badham. And I'm Professor Vilma Luomaaho. Together we research corporate communication at Uvascular University School of Business and Economics. And we are co-editors of the Handbook of Digital Corporate Communication, or DCC. In this podcast series, we interview some of the best corporate communication scholars across the globe. Each one has written a chapter for the handbook. We ask, what is technology changing or not changing in corporate communication? And how are we dealing with the influence of technology? Today, we are talking about digital corporate communication and activism. We are talking with Dr. Maureen Taylor from the School of Communication at University of Technology, Sydney in Australia. Maureen is a member of the Arthur W. Page Society and serves as editor of Public Relations Review. She's also been elected as a fellow of the International Communication Association. So welcome to the podcast, Maureen. Thank you. I must uh, say that uh, Maureen uh, has a pretty cool, raspy voice. So if you're wondering what uh, what she really sounds like, she doesn't really sound like this. Is that right, Maureen? It is correct. I have a cold. This is your digital activism voice. <laughs> exactly. So how do you define actors activism? Who are activists and what do they do? Sure. Well, activism is actually a very complex process by which groups of people try to exert pressure on organizations or other types of institutions in the hope that they will change their policies, practices, or conditions. And essentially, activists identify things that they find is problematic, and they bring people together to further their interests. Uh, An activist can be anybody, right? Um, Individuals, groups, organizations, and networks. And what they seek to do is they seek to target organizations and to tell them that their behavior is inappropriate or illegal even. And so activists are actually um, some of the people who are ahead of time, right? And they are the ones who are interested in social issues. Mm-hmm. Wow. So is this related to what we talk about cancel culture or being woke? Mm-hmm. No, not at all, actually. Um, You know, activists are really looking at at serious issues. It's not that somebody said something inappropriate, which is, of course, a problem, but they're actually looking at policies and practices that might have detrimental effects on society or the environment or people's health. So, um, you know, woke or cancel, I mean, those are tactics that activists can use to raise awareness of their larger issue. But, you know, activism is really just a a real core part of participatory and democratic societies. Mm. So from an organizational perspective, Maureen, we, I guess a lot of us have a tendency to think of activists as dangerous or tricky to deal with. We feel anxious about dealing with them. So is there a positive role that activists play in the life of organizations? They really do. And, you know, in the, in the chapter I write about that they're the canaries in a coal mine. Mm. And a canary in a coal mine was the bird that was brought down. And when the canary would pass out, it meant there was no more oxygen in the coal mine and the miners had to get out or they would die. And I see activists as the social canaries in the coal mine of the world because they alert organizations of upcoming shifts in societal expectations. Activists say this is no longer appropriate. And they bring those issues into the public sphere 
And activist networks are great for amplifying like local, regional, or international advocacy efforts. And you know, if you think back to how the world was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, a lot of the practices that organizations have done, such as you know, um, misuse and abuse of labor, uh, discrimination, all these things, it's activists who have actually said, no, this is not right. And because activists raise the issue, governments and regulators make policies that benefit everyone, including the corporation. So when you talk about them being kind of scary, they're only scary if you think about them as a, a true threat. But if you think about them in the larger scope of an organization's life in society, then they're essentially, as I said, canaries in the coal mine, telling us in advance that things are changing and that if our organization wants to be viewed as a respected, reputable organization, it might need to make changes as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you say that m- most activism online is real or authentic? Um, it depends. Um, I think it would be it would be wrong to say it's all or nothing. I think that there are a lot of people and a lot of groups who are using um, digital activism to accomplish real jobs. For instance, if you think about some of those um, groups like change.org, right, that are bringing people together, even if they don't accomplish the change, the fact that they can bring 10,000, 15,000 people together across the world, that's just one tactic in a larger strategy or a larger campaign of trying to make change. Mm-hmm. Now, you deal with um, activism from a network and supply chain perspective in your research. You've said that supply chains provide a useful lens to understand digital activism and network relationships. Can you tell us about that? I can, and I'm going to tell you how I got to this, because I would have never thought I would ever put the word supply chain in any of my research. (laughs) So I was doing doing interviews for the... um, Uh, an organization that brings activists together and brings corporations together. And I interviewed people from like McDonald's and the large metro chains of Europe, right? These large grocers. And I asked them about, um, you know, what they were doing. And they kept saying, our supply chain is actually our promise, right? When we make a promise, an environmental or a CSR promise to our stakeholders and to our shareholders, it's actually fulfilled not by us, but by our supply chain. So if you're McDonald's and you buy beef or you buy um, soy, right? You're you're promised to your your stakeholders is only as good as the group of people on the ground who are providing that product. So because supply chains are not seen, right? And if it would be too easy for corporations to let their suppliers be, be responsible on their own. So activism is actually one way of helping these large organizations who maybe don't have as much oversight as they should understand what's happening on the ground. And the activists are actually providing a much needed information resource to those corporations so they can make better decisions about their supply chain management. Okay, so activists are um, playing the role of... um shining a light on some of the problems in the supply chain that organizations need to be aware of that they weren't aware of. They are. And then more importantly, because the organizations that are at the top end of the supply chain, right, are consumer product companies, 
Uh, you know, we talked about the uh, the Ken and Barbie, right? And the, the organizations at the top, they then have the power to be able to say, I'm not going to do business with you anymore because I've been hearing and we have evidence, right? It's not just that we've been hearing, it's that they actually get evidence. So they go out, they take pictures, they interview people, mm. right? They, they actually can see and buy, you know, digital activism allows people to take pictures and share them immediately and then share it across the network. So that's why it's so valuable and so powerful. Mm-hmm. They're kind of doing the job of um, journalists in a way, the fourth, uh, the fourth in, state. In the past. They have, in so many ways they are. They're filling in a, a gap that uh, that exists because you, know, you think about a large corporation, a, a, a large grocery company, they can't be everywhere on the ground. Mm-hmm. So digital activists and activists in general perform that role. You're right. Mm-hmm. So anybody can be an activist, is that right, Maureen? I think so. You know, I think many of us become, uh, many of us are sort of passive activists. Like we make decisions about what we'll buy and what we won't buy, where we'll go and what companies we'll own stock in or um, whatever. Like we, many of us make individual decisions. But it was actually when you try to, uh, to, to force an organization to change and you join with others, that you become a part of something bigger and something more powerful. So that's how activist networks. And that's one of the things I've studied for many years, activists and NGO networks. It's not just one organization, but you have the most strength when you join together with other groups that may be even more diverse than you. So maybe you go first with an environmental group and then maybe you go with a consumer group and maybe you go with a religious group. One of our studies that I did about 10 years ago showed that uh, religious organizations and religious NGOs were incredibly powerful allies and activists because they were respected and that they were able to, uh, to meet with and be welcomed by corporations, whereas some of like they say Greenpeace or other ones that might have more of a negative reputation because they've had to use tactics in the past that fell outside the normal, the norm of what's uh, acceptable acceptable and tolerated activism. And so it's, it's everybody, anybody can be an activist and activists, one or two people can actually change the world. Mm -hmm. So activism itself is probably not that new, but what is new about the digital world? What's new about activism? How has it changed? Well, you know, I think actually it was um, mobile phones that took pictures first uh, were probably the beginning. And the internet, of course, and then the ability to share information instantaneously across the world. So we're living in a time where a picture can be taken and shared with millions or billions of people in hours. And so that's, I think, the difference, right? You know, in in the past, I think Mark mentioned about journalists, right? A journalist would go down into the rainforest or into um, the Amazon, write a story, come back and uh, deliver it. And then the people who read it would would think about it. Today, you can sign up for, for getting an email. You can get alerts. You can follow groups on social media. So I think one of the big changes is that it's easier now and it's more immediate. And I think that it's also global. Digitization has changed activism for even local issues like the, you know, the rainforest and the, um, the Amazon, right? Those are local, but they have global implications if you think about the environment, climate change and everything else. So what we see here is digitization has really made local international and made international more localized as well. What about employees uh, inside organizations? Can they be activists? 
They can. And actually, you know, we think of activists as unions, right? Although unions have their power has mm -hmm. waned in the last 50 to 100 years, um, activists, unions were activists and they were activists for labor rights and better working conditions and pay and for um, collective bargaining. So definitely. And, you know, I work at a university. And we are incredibly activist when we don't like something or we think that something's inappropriate. We will band together. We will write letters, um, you know, wear pins. And, you know, these aren't these aren't global issues. They're not going to affect the world. But it does help us feel like we have some type of influence or control over our workspace. Mm. I was going to ask you, Maureen, about has anything not changed due to digitalization of activism? You know, we were just now talking about employees as activists, and you mentioned university employees. I imagine there'd be a lot of non-digital activity going on there. Sure. Right. And, you know, I think, you know, um, in the chapter I talk about from in the streets to on the screen, mm. right? So things haven't changed, right, until there is until there are people who are willing to stand up and to generate that media attention, right? The people walking, the people with signs, the people with slogans, the people who are interviewed by the media. So that, that hasn't changed, right? You're not going to achieve all your ends by just digital activism. There still needs to be an on the streets component. So that's number one. Number two, I, feel, I still think that people treat and organizations treat activists as, as, as a real threat and really negative, and then they need to be dealt with. Mm. And what they need to be is they need to listen to. Sure, you can disagree, right? And we've got lots of research about how there's intractable problems that cannot be agreed upon, but you can agree upon other parts, right? So you don't have to always agree on everything, but you can make small steps. And that's kind of my work on engagement and dialogue has come from that. The idea, of course, you can't solve everything, but you can make small steps where you agree. So I would say that hasn't changed. And then I'm going to say the last one is that organizational behavior is still sometimes um, sketchy at best. Mm -hmm. And that there wouldn't need to be a lot of activism if organizations fulfilled their social license to operate. Um, we um, often ask in the podcast the question of, is there a dark side or downside to this? So in terms of digital activism, what's... What's some of the dark side or downside to that? Sure. Well, trolling, mm. right? So, uh, you know, trolling people on social media. Uh, there's a, a thing called um, gladiator activism. So hacking, yeah. um, distributed denials of service, and then the uh, exposure of personal information from people who are your targets. I think those are some of the real downsides of it. And, you know, people's reputations... Uh, because of the sensational nature of uh, what makes a really good viral social media post is salacious and it's fast and sometimes it doesn't even have to be true, but a person's reputation could be ruined. So I think definitely trolling, DD, uh, DDSDs, and then of course the um, hacking or and anytime you expose people's personal, like for instance, uh, telling where people live or where their kids go to school or what route they take to work or what their license plate is. I think that's the dark side of digital activism. Mm -hmm. So what about campaigns, short-term campaigns? I mean, in the last years, we had the ice bucket challenge and other issues that kind of are aiming at bigger issues behind them, but uh, a lot of controversy was also associated with it. Mm. What's your take I on different kinds? Anytime that you raise awareness about an issue, right? There's, 
today we are in a polarized world, right? And the media, they focus on um, sensationalism and divisive issues. So ice bucket challenge, you can say, oh, that was divisive. Well, in the beginning, it really was a bunch of people trying to raise money for a good cause, right? A, a, a health cause. And over time, it gets um, bastardized, if you want to say it, right? Or um, just sort of I corrupted because people start using it for their own means or they corrupt it by taking it off different paths or they abuse the spirit in which the campaign was created. Mm. So, you know, digital activist campaigns, the, the thing is because it's digital, you can't control it. So you may control the first message, right? Your activist organization controls that first message, but what happens afterwards is totally in the hands of, you know, tens of thousands or millions of other people. And that's, that's scary because in, in our field of corporate communication, right, we really do want to be able to have some semblance of influence or control over how our messages, you know, the, uh, the platform, the message, the timing, and the, uh, the targeting of the audience and digital, anything digital means that you lose control of it. Mm -hmm. What about social media influencers? What kind of activists are they? Well, it is, this is very funny because I started working with the WHO right at the same time that COVID started. And I never thought that I would say that thank you, the Kardashians, and thank you for BTS. <laughs> um, but they were, as influencers, they were incredible for getting out WHO messages about um, protective and preventative behaviors at the very early part of COVID, right? So Uh, again, I never thought I would say that, and I never thought I'd, I'd follow people like this, but they, these influencers, uh, they're not just always about getting something for themselves or their, their sponsors. We, we actually said that they're quite complex. So definitely social media influencers, you bring somebody in like a Lady Gaga, or you bring somebody in who, who shares your values and you get them to, to speak on behalf of your issue or to tell their 20 million followers to do something or to stop doing something. It's not going to affect everybody, but it will influence some people. So I think they do have an important role. And you don't want to be only influencer based, but definitely that's one tactic of many in a campaign. Mm. So can I just clarify with you, Maureen, um, in your opinion, activists should be considered as stakeholders. Always, yes. And it's not just one activist group, right? And it's not just one activist issue. Because we live in complex times, a company that makes um, fast food might have a whole bunch of different activist stakeholders, such as labor stakeholders, environmental stakeholders, um, the people who are in health, right? So it's actually, it is very complex. It is. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through the example of the Asia Pulp and Paper Company? Sure. So this is, it's not, it's a very long, old example. So they've made, it's a, um, it's both public and private. So Asia Pulp and Paper actually has four different companies. Two are privately held by a family and two are made that are, are publicly owned. And they essentially create and make pulp and paper that is sold across the world to some of the largest consumer product companies that we all have in our houses, right? We use them every day. They're trusted brands that we use and we help our children and we use them when we're sick and healthy and, and, and want to celebrate, et cetera. And for many years, activists and local communities, right? So this didn't come just because local activists said, hey, let's go look 
at what Asian pulp and paper is doing in Indonesia. Mm. Instead, local communities raised the alarm that they were cutting down old growth forests, mm. that they were uh, putting in roads that were eroding and creating all sorts of down the road problems of irrigation and uh, trash and rubbish and everything else. So it wasn't that the activists went in, it was the local communities who were being negatively affected by a huge corporation that had all of the power and all of the influence in government. So many years ago, Asian Pulp and Paper made public commitments through its CSR to A, help those communities, but B, to only source ethically and not to cut down old growth forests. So the activists came in when the local communities kept saying, you know what, they're not doing it. And more importantly, when we go to them, they're, they're beating us up and killing us. So we need some help. And so international activists came in took pictures, interviewed local community, and essentially caught the organization violating the public commitments that it had made to the different associations that it's a member of. And that's another great thing about activism is it doesn't have to say you're doing anything wrong. All it has to do is show that you are, you are not adhering to the standards that you, that organization, publicly committed to. Mm. So the reason, so back, uh, you know, after 10 years, and a lot of the environmental organizations are, you know, letters, they start, they start with letters and they start with sending pictures and they work then with the media and then they try to get um, networks around it, right? So the activists aren't just an individual activist parachuting in, taking pictures and leaving. They realize there's a variety of ways that you can influence an organization and it's through its bottom line. So asking for boycotts and protests through regulation, asking governments to either uh, regulate the organization or to fine it, right? And then there's the consumer product companies at the higher end of the food chain, right? And say, please don't buy their products, please buy other products so that uh, you're not feeding into the destruction of old growth rainforest. So that's pretty much the example. The example is it isn't like a one, one point in time problem. It's an ongoing problem of an organization that fails to meet its public commitments to its corporate social responsibility and ethical sourcing of its products. Mm. You mentioned letters and the news media and so on. Um, can you remember what, what were some of the digital elements to the communication that went on in that example? Sure, sure. Well, of course, there these all these activist organizations have um, social media followers, mm. and many of them make videos. So having a YouTube video of a bulldozer taking out what looks like a 200-year-old old-growth tree is pretty powerful, especially if it's done well and it's shareable, and there's a narrative in there, and there's an action step. So uh, I would say first, the, uh, the sharing of images. The second, the using of social media networks. Um, number three, the, uh, the YouTube, right? And the video and creating that video evidence. And then I think linking activists together through websites and through social media as well is another way of using digital activism. And you know, you can go all the way up to that gladi gladiator activism where they could, if they really wanted to, I'm sure they could find some smart entrepreneurial computer scientists, they could do DDoS attacks, they could do trolling, right? They, they could do some of those more, um, punitive approaches to the family because remember two of the companies are family owned mm. mm -hmm. so some of these examples are also visible now um, in the war in in ukraine mm. yes that's uh yes and I, yeah <laughs> so 
how do you think Maureen organizations should at best collaborate with activists? I really think the, uh, and again, this is from, from my interviews and also from my research in supply chain, which again, I never thought that I would do. Mm. You know, I think that organizations need to put the resources in to understanding the lowest level of their suppliers and keeping them ethical. And that's why actually many of these large corporations fund activist and environmental groups to perform that function, right? They're, they're actually help, they're supporting because they're like, you know what, we can't do this or we can't do this alone. So you got your soybean industry or your beef industry or your palm oil industry actually collaborating with activists saying, you know what, okay, uh, We'll, we'll listen to you and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, understand what you're, where you're coming from and we'll try to work with our suppliers on the lower end of our market to make sure that they follow these rules. You know, all organizations that are in the corporate sphere, right, they, they work through the social license to operate, right? In a dem democratic and capitalist society, mm -hmm. uh, organizations are given the, the chance to make money right, to perform their functions because society says what you're doing is valuable. And social license to operate then says those that violate this, this, this covenant, right, this, uh, this contract with humanity, we should actually take away their SLO. So I would say my advice is number one, recognize that you, you work actually on behest of society and society has the right to take away your license to operate. Number two, I would tell them to listen to activists. Uh, you may, you're obviously not going to give them everything that they want, but you can become a good corporate citizen and a good global citizen by spending a little bit more of your resources at the lower end to ensure that your suppliers are following and enacting the commitments that you've made at a higher level. And I just think, again, that activists are really these canaries in the coal mine. And by listening to them, again, you don't have to, organizations don't have to do everything, right? Because that's part of that give and take of a, of a participatory society, right? But at the same time, recognizing that activists are usually ahead of the game, right? Activists were asking for, you know, um, getting rid of discrimination, gender discrimination, LGBTQI discrimination, right? Environmental things, environmental processes and protections years ago. Mm. And we know that in democratic societies that when organizations fail to provide the services and they fail to, to gain that social license to operate, they'll be regulated. And regulation is, is often not a good thing for organizations. So my advice is do it yourself, right? Take the initiative, join a network of other organizations like your own, right? And figure out how you can solve this and, and develop partnerships. And you may not be partners with certain groups because you're at different ends of the spectrum, but there are always moderate organizations and moderate perspectives will always come through. Mm. Well, Maureen, we're almost coming to the end of mm. our questions, but a few more to go. Um, so would you recommend having in-house uh, activists for <laughs> major corporations? Is this a future? You know, in some ways, the public, the corporate communication, the public relations function in some ways should be mm. an activist. 
Mm. Not in the sense of, um, you know, obviously taking things and sending them to the media and making them public, mm. but in many ways, sitting in the room and asking those difficult, difficult questions and being that devil's advocate and saying, if we do this, what are the short-term and long-term implications for our relationships with our stakeholders, our reputation in the field, and more importantly, what does this do to affect our local community, national community, and global community? So in some ways, I think that that's sort of our role isn't, you know, to be out there on the front end or, or social media and doing, uh, you know, uh, pictures and stuff, but definitely performing that role of asking important questions that other people don't even think about asking. Mm -hmm. I was listening to you talk about all this, Maureen, and I wonder if the word activist can be problematic. And there are other terms probably that others use in other disciplines like change actors or something like that yeah. um do you think it's problematic is it worth in in the future investigating use the use of other terms or words to describe these people yes maybe you know in, in public relations we have the term um the conscience of the organization mm. you know the the ethical conscience or the another term that's being used now is the moral entrepreneur mm. so I don't know if any of these work personally, but definitely the role, the term, you know, the term could be whatever it wants. And many companies have ethicists mm. who work to, to ask those questions, people with PhDs in philosophy or people who have worked in the field for a long time. So the title, I don't think matters as much as the role and the function that it performs. Mm. Okay. Um, so that leads to the final question, really, it links to it. And that is uh, what future research do you hope to still see in this area? I would love to actually be able to quantify how um, better supply chain management and ethical sourcing and how activists can actually help organizations uh, make more money, be more productive, be more efficient, right? So that they're not wasting resources. I would love to be able to show that activism has a, a contribution to the long-term bottom line of organizations. Great. Thank you so much for that, Maureen. That's very interesting. And hopefully people, listeners are inspired to look into this um, a lot more and uh, help to shine a light on this and uh, do more research in this area. Excellent. And thank you for your book. I think your book is the right topic at the right time. And I think it's going to be an excellent contribution to the field of corporate communication. Super. Thanks, Maureen. All right. See you later. Yeah. All right. Thank you. You were listening to the Digital Corporate Communication DCC podcast. 